for all the hearts here that for fellowship, yes. for everybody being here today, this beautiful day that you've given us. And Father, as Mike speaks to us and tells us how you have worked in his life and changed his heart, I just ask that we all um, remember this as we focus on our walk with the Holy Spirit every day. And just uh, amazed at your awesome divine power and how you can change people. Uh, I just pray for Mike. Uh, bless him. Uh, keep him comfortable. Give him peace. And help him strengthen his walk today as a result of his giving his testimony to us here in the room. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Thank you, everybody. Some familiar faces here. You've been over at Glenn's, and I've been able to be around you a little bit. But I usually, I'm usually at warp speed when I'm in the kitchen. So, so normally I, I do share my story in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, whenever I'm asked, and it's fairly often. Um, sharing my testimony is even more special um, because where I feel that God wants me is to serve others, um, and so. Through Chef to the Shelters, which we're working on, you know, building right now, that gives me an opportunity to be someone that another alcoholic and addict can look at and see that there is a life after. So uh, normally, when I speak in AA, we we tell our stories in a general way of what it was, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And I'll kind of follow a little bit of that today. If y'all want the whole story, there is a. A podcast that's three hours and 15 minutes long, if you'd like the long version. Yeah, that's like the King James version, you know? <laughs> I mean, I'm going to give the ERV today, okay? Uh, I will start out, you know, my life today is a result, and I'll cry through this, and don't worry, it's, it happens. But I don't have any sad tears anymore. I don't. Um, these are all tears of grace. Um, but... Where I am today is a result of what I refer to as a foxhole prayer. Um, and through my life that you'll hear a little bit about, I had a lot of foxhole prayers, you know, to God. It was, man, if you just get me out of this one pickle, if you just get me, I'll do whatever you want, man. I'd get out of something and, man, I was back to my old ways. And uh, in uh, about six or seven months sober, I was living in a vacant house in Wichita, Kansas. And... Uh, I had one of those foxhole prayers, Um, and I said, God, if you will just let me use the talents that I have, I will do anything for you, Um, and that's really why I'm here today. I'm keeping my promise from that foxhole prayer. I told myself I wasn't going to cry that much, but... So I, uh, I was born in a small town in Kansas, Hugoton, Kansas, down in the southwest um, by Dodge City, Ulysses. Um, at two years old, moved to Wichita, obviously with my parents. I couldn't walk yet. Um, I was in Wichita until about five years old. Then we moved here to uh, Dallas. We were, you know, I, I like to refer to it as fashionable North Dallas. Grew up, uh, went to W.T. White, Nathan Adams Elementary School, W.T. White. Right about 1977-78, my parents were getting a divorce. And I found out about my parents' divorce from one of my next-door neighbors, who his parents knew, but I didn't know. And that really started a a chain of events in me of rebellion. I had uh, grown up in the church, Schreiber Methodist uh, Church, which was right across from W.T. White. And we went every Sunday, and I didn't necessarily hate it, but I didn't necessarily love it. Uh, I really did like communion days because the ladies did make homemade bread, and I got to eat a lot of that. 
And that'll play a part in my story because that's a those are seeds that were being planted and I didn't know that. Because I can still, to this day, I can remember where the Truitts sat, where the Cleggs sat, where the Taylors sat, where the Robs sat, where we sat. So I didn't necessarily understand anything about God at that point. But these are seeds that were uh, probably put under some pretty heavy topsoil. Got out of uh, high school and I went to college at the University of Arkansas. Um, Spent nine years at the University of Arkansas, but that's a longer story. Um, As a a fifth-year sophomore, I decided I needed a break because I was stressed, so I moved to Vail, Colorado. I lived in Vail for a year. I was excommunicated from my family until I came back and actually had savings in the bank, and then all of a sudden it was, oh, no, we supported Mike and going. I'm like... That was not Thanksgiving dinner of 84. I know it wasn't. But I started drinking very heavily in high, the, towards the end of high school and uh, at the University of Arkansas a lot. I couldn't see it. I just, you know, I used the phrase, you know, just everybody else, you know, y'all can't handle your liquor, your lightweights. So uh, got through college, did not graduate, but I was there nine years, so I think I get like an honorary something. <laughs> And uh, took off, and I went to work for Hyatt Hotels in uh, Lake Tahoe, Nevada from there. And Lake Tahoe was there just about a year, and some things happened. You know, I took some money out of the register because I wanted to impress a girl that was coming. And uh, didn't really think about the eye in the sky because it is a casino property, so I got fired from there. But I didn't, you know, until I got sober, I never told anybody that part of my story because, you know, there's a lot of things I lied about. So immediately, I knew people within Hilton Hotels Corporation, and literally immediately, I got hired on in their national sales office, which was back here in Dallas. We reported out of Beverly Hills. That was where our corporate office was. Got back here. Uh, that was about the time Miko Cena opened up. Um, at one point, I held the record for the most Mambo taxis, and I was tied with Mickey Mantle. He had the most uh, margaritas, so I'm in the record book somewhere with Mickey Mantle. Uh, landed a really big deal for Hilton Hotels. It was 33,000 room nights, and that got me uh, noticed out of Beverly Hills. Also won National Salesperson of the Year. Pretty soon they moved me to Beverly Hills. I got out to Beverly Hills. I lived in the Beverly Hilton for uh, about 11 months. I lived next door to Rodney Dangerfield in the Beverly Hilton. And things were going along there, you know, drinking still. And then I wanted to come back here so I came back to the National Sales Office. This would have been around 93-ish. In the, towards the end of 94, somebody had mentioned to me that they heard that there was going to be a racetrack built here. You all probably know Lone Star Park at Grand Prairie. They hadn't even broken ground yet. And so I interviewed and I, I landed the job of director of corporate sales. So that was a project from Harlan Crow of Trammell Crow's son, um, and some of the best and brightest men I've ever worked with. In fact, one of my best mentors in my business world, Steve Sexton, was, uh, was there and was one of my, uh, my bosses. It, an interesting thing, and I'll pause here for a second. I could not see my disease while I was in it. I couldn't. Um, and some of the things I'll tell you, you're going to probably say to yourself, you couldn't see anything wrong with that behavior. I'm like, no, I, I couldn't. Um, so when we opened Lone Star Park, 
I am my, one of my major responsibilities were the luxury suites on two floors. Um, there's 24 suites, and then uh, jockey club memberships, box uh, box seats, uh, everything except in, uh, general admission or individual tickets. And so when the track opened, you know, we ran at night. Um, and I started stopping in the suites because I'd sold a big, uh, vast majority of those suites, and I knew the other owners that had them. And people started wanting me to have a drink with them, you know, the owners of the suites. Well, pretty soon, old Mike was having about 12, 15 drinks at work because I went to 12, 15 suites. Still could see nothing wrong with that. Um, while I was there, I made friends with the guys from the Dallas Stars, which was Tom Hicks at the time. Uh, he owned the Stars. They recommended me to Disney. Disney owned the Ducks and the Angels at the time. They flew me out. So I went from Lone Star Park. I went to the Ducks and the Angels. Um, I was out there just a little bit over a year. And Brian Burns with the Stars, he was one of my really good friends, and he's the one that recommended me to Disney, called me, and he said, uh, Tom bought the Rangers and also the rodeo. I mean, because baseball bleeds into hockey, hockey bleeds into baseball, preseason, spring training, postseason, Stanley Cup. It's just, and you're always in a budget cycle as you go through this. And uh, he said, well, we want to bring you back. And we're going to bring you back as vice president of the Dallas Stars, Texas Rangers, Mesquite Rodeo, and we're going to build the American Airlines Center. And I remember on the call, I I told Brian, I said, well, uh, probably about the third call. I said, okay, let's talk money. He goes, I'm not, we're not going to talk money. And I said, well, Brian, I'm not going to move if I don't know what I'm making. He goes, no, you know, the ballpark, you know, there's four towers. And it's weird calling it the old ballpark now because it was new back then. I said, yeah, there's four towers. He goes, well, only one tower was finished out. And it was finished out for uh, George W. when he owned the team. It's finished out into a condo. You're going to live there. So I lived in the tower behind the Budweiser sign, ironically enough. In the ballpark. I lived in the ballpark um, for about nine or ten months. And everything was going great there. Drinking a lot. Um, didn't really you know, have an effect on my performance yet. Then uh, Jimmy Lights went to, uh, he was our president. Uh, he went to Arizona, took Brian with him. Uh, they wanted to take three more of us. The Dallas Stars filed executive tampering charges uh, with the league. And so if they took any more execs, it'd be a quarter million dollar fine to the Stars. Um, so Jimmy said, you know, it's too hot. I can't take you. And I said, well, what if I left the country for 30, more than 30 days? He goes, I love the way you think. So I went in and I quit. And, you know, Jeff Overton was the guy that took over for Brian. And I wasn't really ready for, I just, I was going in to quit. And he said, well, you can't go to Arizona. And I said, I, I'm not. And he said the unthinkable. He said, where are you going? And I'm standing there looking at this man and I'm just out of my mouth, Scotland. Didn't know anything about Scotland other than there's a great golf tournament there. And so uh, I went downstairs, called my sister and uh, told her I was, uh, I had resigned and I was moving. She said, where? I said, Scotland. She said, when? I said, Friday. And that uh, was an interesting conversation in the family. Um, so I did that over in Scotland. And the reason I like to talk about that, um, that's where my morning drinking really, really got a hold of me. 
I didn't, you know, obviously I wasn't working while I was over there, and so a lot of golf, but a lot of drinking. Um, and when I came back across the pond um, and got back to, got, or got to Arizona, um, my morning drinking or day drinking, you know, or, oh, you know, I'm going to play golf, I need, oh, my back's stiff, I need to have a drink, loosen up, you know, there's lies that an alcoholic tells himself that, uh, again, you know, just, I never could see my disease at the time. Um, so by 2004, uh, we had the new arena built and the lockout came. And as part of the lockout, Brian's job was eliminated, my job was eliminated. And one of the guys I sold a suite to, uh, Brian Hughes, uh, see, so I've worked for Brian Ritchie with Hilton, Brian Burns with Tom, Tom Hicks's group, and then Brian Hughes. I, evidently, I worked well with Brian's. Um, so Brian Hughes, I sold a suite to. He was the CEO of Stewart Title and Trust. He came to me and took me golfing one day at Arizona Country Club and said, uh, you know, I want, I want to bring you on board as my VP of business development. And I looked at him and I said, Brian, I don't know anything about real estate. And I'd gotten married at the time we were expecting our first child. And he said, Mike, I've seen you in two years. You have more relationships in this town than guys that have you know, been with me for 15, 20 years. And so uh, we sat down and started talking financial, and uh, the salary was unbelievable. Unlimited expense account, and that'll play into uh, part of my story. Country club membership at Arizona Country Club, blah, 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 blah. So pretty soon I was traveling the globe, taking clients. You know, we went to St. Andrews. We went to the Ryder Cup at the K Club in Ireland. Seven, seven World Series, both cities, traveling back and forth, four Super Bowls. And I look back at that now, and I just, for me, I think it was Gross. And I'll tell you why. You know, I went to the Masters eight times uh, with clients. And all I could think about every time I went to any of these events was, what am I going to tell my friends about next? Where do I get to brag to my friends I'm going to go next? I don't know that I really ever enjoyed one of those eight Masters. Um, fueled by, you know, I wanted to see how many plastic cups I could bring back that said, you know, Augusta National on them. I'd be the drunk walking out of the tournament with 15 cups. And anyway, uh, so f once we got to 2009, I'd had back problems for a long time. And uh, uh, 2009, a doctor said, okay, you know, we've tried to treat this with radiofrequency ablation, PT. I mean, we've done everything we can. You're going to need to have spinal fusion, double fusion on L4 and L5, so uh, I did that. I was introduced to morphine in the hospital, and they told me I'd get a pain doctor, and uh, you don't do that to a guy like me. Um, got on the internet, read a lot about it, knew what to say to the doctors. I'll fast forward to uh, 2012, had burnt down my marriage, I have two beautiful children, uh, burnt down my marriage, 2013, 14, and 15, I'd worked the doctors, um, I had three different doctors that I was working, and by 2015 I uh, attempted suicide. At that point I was on uh, 300 Percocet a month, Adderall to get up, Ambien to go to bed, bottle of scotch a day, and cocaine about every other day. Um, I took 130 Percocet to, uh, in an attempt to take my life, um, put something up on Facebook and at about 2 or 3 in the morning and one of my friends happened to be up and he read through it and he had my address. He called uh, the police in Scottsdale 
came, they kicked in my door, the EMTs were there, they took me to the hospital, shot me up with Narcan. Um, Narcan is a life-saving drug for anyone that's uh, hooked on opioids, opioids, heroin, that kind of stuff. Got out of the hospital and, uh, you know, I'd stayed in my condo for three years, uh, riding on my residuals from Stuart Title. Um, I hadn't... Uh, I hadn't gone after new business in three years. I just stayed on a couch under a blanket taking drugs and uh, drinking. On February on February 16th of 2016, I can look back now and I can say uh, that was God really getting started with me. I woke up that morning and... Uh, called all three doctors and I told them what I'd been doing to them and uh, they all said with the amount of drugs and alcohol you're on you need to go to a hospital or a rehab it'd be dangerous for you uh, to try and stop on your own and I just politely told all three of them um, never to write me a prescription again what I know now about alcoholism and addiction is an addict is never going to call their dealer and cut themselves off um, and that's why I reference you know uh, the only explanation is God so I went cold turkey on all of the pills, um, and uh, it was three weeks of sweating through three outfits a night. It wasn't pleasant. Um, it's probably as close to hell as I hoped to ever have gotten. Um, towards the end of that, I got a phone call from a guy, Steve Violetta. Steve and I knew each other in the sports world. He had done the naming rights for Petco Park. I hadn't talked to Steve in five years. Um, and he still had my number, and he had an opportunity in, uh, in minor league hockey, and, uh, and it was in Wichita, Kansas. And I took it, and I moved there. I was still drinking heavily, but uh, that would have been uh, March of 16. No, March of 17, I think. No, 16. Yeah, March of 16, because I was there March through November. And I have a picture on my phone. Uh, I was watching TV. I hadn't been to church in 32 years. And I remember driving down the street in Scottsdale looking at a church that I could still see the pictures. I can remember saying, uh, they're all liars. They're all hypocrites. You know, they beat their wives. They cuss at home. They, you know... They're not Christians, whatever. And so I was definitely uh, a defiant guy. I still would say I was agnostic because I at least believed there was something. Just didn't know what it was. By uh, November of that year, well, I'm sorry, May, May 22nd of 2016, I had decided to watch church on TV because I'd been on the West Coast for 16 years and sports comes on at 9 or 10 a.m. and you get my party on, you know, start drinking early. And anyway, on May 22nd, I'd watched, I'd probably watched church for about a month, maybe two months at that point because uh, I saw this guy, Kent Rod, Pastor Kent, who's a very good friend of mine. In fact, I'll see him next Saturday when I go up to Wichita. But uh, just got drawn to the, you know, watching it on TV. Thanks. Um... Got drawn to it, watching it on TV, and on May 22nd of 16, the picture on my phone, his email address came down on the screen, and that's, uh, that's the first time I uh, said something to God. 
And uh, I said, I looked up and I said, okay, I'm going to send him an email. Um, so I did. And uh, his secretary called me and said, Pastor Kent would like to meet with you. And we met at a coffee shop. And I might have been one one thousandth honest with him. I was never going to tell anybody all of my, you know, deepest, darkest sins. Um, but that really started me being able to listen to the Word a little bit. So uh, by the end of November of 2016, I was really infamous for these 2 a.m. emails when I'd been drinking. And uh, you can ask my ex-wife. And it's okay to laugh at that. Sorry. I I decided uh, that it was either going to be me or the general manager of the hockey team. Um, And, uh, of course, you know, I sent the owner an email at 2 a.m. And uh, he chose the general manager, of course. So uh, I was relieved of my duties there. And uh, right at that same time, a friend of mine was president of a minor minor league soccer team in uh, uh, Phoenix. And they were going to rebrand from Arizona United to uh, Phoenix Rising FC, build a stadium, uh, offer me a job. I came in. So my universe of people, like if you all were my friends, you all would be sitting there going, he did it again. He nailed. Look at this job. Look at him go. But they didn't know I was just leaving, you know, cluster bombs everywhere, you know, I had been. So I got back to Arizona, and of course, immediately, pride, ego, self-centered, selfish, self, self, self. Um, Thought I was, you know, the biggest guy in Phoenix once again. And one of the the things that I, I skipped over, about the divorce. By the time the divorce came, the egotistical and the pride and the selfishness, to let you understand what I gave away. I didn't lose anything. I had a choice, and I gave it away because of drugs and alcohol, but we had four houses, I had four Porsches, and I flew private. And so now I'll get back to, uh, um, I'd gotten back, really thought I was the king of the town with Phoenix Rising FC. Um, Probably about six months into it, I sent my chief operating officer another 2 a.m. email, and uh, I was escorted out of the building the next day. In December of 17, I got a phone call from my sister, and uh, she told me that a young man had reached out to her and uh, thought that I was his father and wanted to talk to me. And so I said, why don't you give him my name and my number, and I'll talk to him. And uh, he got me on the phone. He's uh, At the time, he was 31 years old. He's a Marine. He was a gunny sergeant. And for four months, we had conversations. I mean, he was mine. I did take a DNA test. I didn't doubt it. When I saw, if you saw his picture, <laughs> him and I sitting next to each other, I'm like, dude, you really want to drop 400 bucks? I mean, I knew, I knew your mom in 85, you were born in 86, and look at our pictures. But we did it. Um, so for four months, I don't really remember anything we talked about. Um, and we weren't close by any means. When I got to March of 18, I was back in a really dark spot because of alcoholism, um, active alcoholism. And I had decided I was probably going to take my life, um, attempt it again. And I I have a really warped sense of humor. For some reason... Um, I decided that I should get baptized before I killed myself. So Easter Sunday of 2018 was on April 1st. Um, 
so I got baptized on Easter Sunday. And uh, the next seven days, I don't, I don't really remember it. I don't think anything happened. Uh, when I woke up on the morning of uh, April 8th of 2018, a week later, I call that my day of grace. When I opened my eyes, sorry, when I opened my eyes, I knew it was over. God had taken the obsession and craving for alcohol out of me, and it was as clear to me as this piece of paper is to me today. When I opened my eyes, it was over. It was done. I went downstairs and uh, threw away the booze that was in my house and just laid there on the couch and turned on the golf tournament or whatever. And on Monday, something inside of me said, you need to go to an AA meeting. I didn't know where it was. Um, got on the internet, looked it up, and uh, got to it's uh, the meeting place is called Bloopers. It's in uh, Tempe. And... Uh, I remember walking up to the door and Alcoholics Anonymous, the logo, it's a circle with a triangle in it. And I'm walking up the door and I'm like, Mike, this is a bad idea. This is a cult. This is not a good thing. And I walked in and they didn't look like me. They didn't talk like me. They'd never had four Porsches. They never flew private. They never, 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 you know. And uh, I went and sat in a corner by myself. I didn't want to talk to any of those strange people. And I looked up on the wall and on the wall, there's a thing, and they're called the Night Step Promises. And understand where I was totally, I mean, my life was a disaster. Had one of my Porsches repossessed, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. The Night Step Promises says, uh, we're going to, it says, if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. The feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. And the last one is really my favorite. Um, we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And I read those, and I looked around the room, and I said, this is a multi-level marketing scam, and somebody's going to ask me for money. Um, and uh, then all of a sudden, people started sharing. There's speaker meetings, and there's sharing meetings. There's all different kinds of meetings. And as these people were sharing, my ears perked up, and I looked around, and it was like somebody had given them a file on my life. They, everybody that was sharing was telling something that was inside of me. So then about my third meeting, I knew that you were supposed to get a sponsor. And that for me was about like getting another wife. Didn't want to do that. Um, but there was a guy that uh, owned his own business. And really, every time he shared, just really, I connected with the guy. So I asked him to be my sponsor. And, and his name's Mark. And we are very, very close today. He's not my sponsor anymore because I live here and he's still there. But Mark, Mark really, I think it was 
pivotal for God to put him in my life because Mark, when I asked him to be my sponsor, Mark walked outside with me and he said, uh, Mike, are you done? I wasn't, it was just like Jeff Overton with the start. I wasn't ready for that question. And I said, Mark, I can't tell you that three years from now I'm not on the golf course drinking a Dos Equis. I can't tell you that. And he said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. And he, he got me a big book. And uh, he said, we're going to read the doctor's opinion through 164. We're not going to drink today, but when we get together tomorrow, we might have a beer. So I said, perfect. I went, I got in the car. I'm like, I met the cool kid on the smoking porch at high school. This is good. I'm drinking tomorrow. This AA thing's going to be great. When I saw Mark the next day, I said, uh, hey, are we going to get that beer? And this is what did it for me. He said, no, Mike, you didn't, you didn't hear me. He said, uh, I said, we're not going to drink today, but we might have a beer tomorrow. And all of a sudden, forever that I couldn't comprehend of not drinking was packaged up into a 24-hour period. And uh, that's when the journey started. And uh, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, my fellowship, as I call it, we talk a lot about rigorous and thorough honesty, and that was definitely not one of my uh, attributes at all. So about two months into sobriety in uh, 2018, June of 18, I called Mark and I said, hey, um, this rigorous and thorough honesty is great for everybody else, but I'm going to lose my place because I'd quit playing the shell game because I'm trying to do this rigorous and thorough, honest life. And uh, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my place. And he said, I know. He goes, but you're going to be okay. So uh, on Father's Day of 2018, I lost my home. But there was a there was a peace around it. I wasn't like it wasn't catastrophe what I'd lived the last thirty years of my life in. It was like, oh, okay, well, this is what sobriety is about. Um, so I became homeless. I was homeless for ten months, and part of that, I popped around a couple of different states, doing some odd jobs, just making a little money here, a little money there. And I was back in Wichita, and I was actually living in a uh, in the vacant house that I started this conversation with y'all about this morning. I was living in that vacant house and I did the foxhole prayer. In that vacant house, I found the peace and serenity that I had tried to drink and drug my way to my entire life. I looked around a vacant house, which you might think would be the worst day of my life. Um, And I just smiled. I finally had a real smile. And I said, you know what? God's got this. Um, I just need to get out of God's way. Um, and so I did. I, uh, I just kept doing what my sponsor told me, which is the next right thing. He says, if you just keep doing the next right thing, you know, everything's going to turn out good. Got back to Phoenix, and uh, in March of 19, uh, I woke up, much like February 16th of 2016 and April 8th of 2018, I woke up late March and uh, I called my sponsor and I said God put on my heart that uh, he wants me to go back to Dallas and geographical moves in in our fellowship are are frowned upon you know you just don't do them because you're running from your problems and my sponsor said and he's not from here Um, and he said okay you're going to go to the Preston group and you're going to meet blank and blank and they're going to get you started now I was living in my car so I detailed six cars for 50 bucks a car, so I had 300 bucks to get back to Dallas. 
got back to Dallas. Um, my church life was really good. I've, I've skipped over that. I'm sorry. I was attending Highlands Church in Phoenix, which I still do on YouTube each Sunday. Um, it's really, it's really kind of my home. And uh, anyway, I got back to Dallas. Um, I was staying in a, a, a friend of mine from high school. His mom said I could stay in one of the rooms in her house till I got back on my feet. And all of a sudden, um, I thought I'd be back in sports, but uh, um, all these title companies were popping up, about seven of them that I was having conversations with. And uh, I got to a third interview with uh, who I'm with still, Capital Title. And the president called me and said, you've got a third interview. The partners, uh, I went up and met with them and said, the partners voted. We'd like to offer you uh, uh, the job as vice president of business development. Same role I had with uh, Stuart Title and Trust for nine and a half years. And uh, I said, when, this was uh, either, I think it was a Wednesday or a Thursday. And I said, when would you like me to start? And he said, I'd like you to start on Monday. And I said, okay. And I held it together until I got down to the car. Monday was April 8th, my one-year sobriety birthday. And this is, uh, like it says in the prophet, this is God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. So started working uh, with Capital Title, got very involved in uh, program Alcoholics Anonymous, started cooking for people. Because I really love to cook. I don't think anything was that great, but in uh, 2019, I started cooking for free. Uh, for some friends in Highland Park just to try and get my name out there. By November of that year, I had talked to the chief operating officer at Dallas 24-Hour Club. It's a sober transition home for men and women like me who've lost everything and they have nowhere else to go. And he said I could cook on Thanksgiving. And on Thanksgiving, I uh, I said, how many people? He said 200. I said, not a problem. I hung up the phone. I'm like, what the you ever cook for 200 people in your life? But, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's got me in his hands. And we did it. Um, cooked for 200 people. And then uh, things just kept going in the cooking world. Um, and I was, you know, obviously still capital title. And uh, then I, Glenn, I reached back out to him. And we had built a friendship here. Uh, more of a friendship. Um, he offered me an opportunity in his company, and he shared a little bit about with that view. I've gone to Capital Title twice to resign. They won't let me. <laughs> um, but the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I can't do something if I don't think it's morally right. So that second time I went to quit, I told them they just I, they can't pay me anymore. I can't do that. So they took my salary down. I still have my benefits, and you know get like. 350 bucks paycheck and any business that I bring in, but I wasn't really paying attention to that. Glenn and I talked, probably it was, I want to say about June or July of last year, and Glenn said he saw, you are one of my best mentors. Thank you. Glenn said, uh, I see where your passion is, and it's cooking for the shelters. And, uh, and it's God, and uh, we're both on this beautiful journey with God, you know, a God that I denied for a lot of my life, who has showed me so much grace. And uh, he said, I want to help build a runway 
of course, I said, is this a runway for a Cessna or a 777? Because I know a little bit about aviation from flying private, and there's lengths of runways. Um, and it was somewhere in the middle. And anyway, the joke, the, my really funny joke, I said, oh, after he laid it out, I said, uh, oh, good, by December I should be homeless again. And without a hesitation, he goes, well, you were good at that once. <laughs> I said, okay, there's no enabling from Glenn, let me tell you that. So as, as we got more into, uh, oh, I should, I should talk about April 8th of uh, 2019. Um, I'm going to back up just a little bit. The general counsel for the Rangers when I was with Tom Hick, and we were good friends uh, when I was with the organization, and she she knew me from the past, good friends, and she knew about the crash and burn, and then she's watched me, you know, on Facebook, and she reached out and said, Mike, would you uh, would you consider cooking at the Masters? Um, she's now the senior director of business affairs for Augusta National, and I said, yeah, I would consider taking out the garbage at the Masters. And uh, she got me an interview with Chef Roberto Bustillo. He's the executive chef. Chef Roberto interviewed me, got the gig. So my th- no, second sobriety birthday, I was. Uh, it was opening day. It was Thursday, uh, opening round of uh, the Masters, and I was in Bertman's place and uh, cooking for the members. Um, I am a self-taught redneck hillbilly cook um, that got an opportunity for his first time in a commercial kitchen to be at the Masters. I mean, you don't think God's got a sense of humor. Um, I'll wrap it up, I know. I'm sorry. You nine years of training. Right, yeah, I did, right. Um, thank you. Uh, probably about the middle of last year, even during COVID, I was still cooking for people in 2020 and 2021, about the middle of the year. Um, I had now gotten up to uh, 27 sober shelters, sober living homes, sober transition homes in, you know, people with my disease. And I cook for them out of my house. I cook. I get to cook for more than 500 people once a month out of my home with one oven. I do have uh, a couple of big green eggs and a blackstone because I needed some other heat sources. But uh, I want to share a few things just before I wrap up because it's really, if you all have never read the book of alcohol, the big book as we call it, um, this is the smaller book. It doesn't have the stories in the back, but it's 164 pages. There's a chapter in here and it's called We Agnostics. It's the fourth chapter. I highly recommend that all of you read it. I know so many men and women that come into the fellowship that hate God, that are atheists, that are agnostic, that can't believe in something. And there is an extremely high percentage of us that read this book. And it's a, it is a spiritual book. And I watch, people's, I, I watch people's demeanors change. I watch their eyes light up. I get to do that. Um, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob in 1935 got together. After Carl Jung, uh, they figured out the, the problem. The drink is not my problem. Alcohol is not my problem. That's a symptom. My problem, as it's spelled out in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, is a spiritual malady. As I got deeper and deeper into uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and working through the steps, every one of those night set promises has come true. Every single one of them. 
especially that last one. This is God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. That chapter 4, if you don't read anything else, read that chapter. Um, because it, Dr. Bob and Bill literally have the words there that can bring a, a soul like mine back to a really open heart and an understanding of God. Jeff spoke, uh, he said something in the pulpit two weeks ago. Did you get ordained two weeks ago? Right. He said something in the pulpit. And there's, there's, there's a couple of things that stick out. And I made just a few notes. And one of the quotes, it had something to do with what Jeff said. And it was, uh, have you prayed about it as much as you've talked about it? Um, and I heard that in the meeting in a meeting one time, and I said, "That's one of the most profound things that I think I've ever heard." Have you prayed about it as much as you've talked about it? One of my mantras is, you know, God didn't quit on me, so I'm not going to quit on Him. I do get tired. Um, right now, I have a number of opportunities in front of me to build this organization. The organization, I think in year one can feed 130,000 men and women in sobriety. We found a building, and God's doing all this. The more I stay out of God's way, the more good things happen. And sometimes it's hard because working with Hilton Hotels Corporation, Disney, Tom Hicks, Harlan Crow, I mean, it's a structure of you've got to have this five-year plan, seven-year plan, and, and this is like... I have to stay out of God's way. Um, But what I get to do when I go to the shelters and I serve a lights-out meal, because I remember the guy sitting in his car, living in his car, eating a sleeve of crackers. And I remember thinking, you know, here's a guy that used to travel the world and eat wherever I want, Soho, anywhere, you know. And uh, so that's where Chefs of the Shelters came from. I said, I want men and women in early sobriety to know they're not lost. Like this is, you're relearning a new way to approach life, and it's a spiritual way. And if we can solve the spiritual malady within us, like alcohol, I just don't even care about it anymore. I take customers to happy hour. I go to the office sometimes to happy hour. I just, it's just not a thing. But the spiritual malady was the, the part that the program takes us through. And when I see men and women, how we've set it up for the last almost two years now every major holiday is when i feed all 27 shelters um and there's a reason for that if you think about it and you think about what you all do and i don't know what you do but i know what i did on saint patty's day memorial day labor day fourth of july any holiday there's alcohol involved you probably don't have you know the disease i have and you can do it normally but for an alcoholic that i get to serve we get to serve they have a safe place every major holiday. St. Patty's Day, they're not biting their nails going, my family's doing this, and they're like, no, Chef Mike, you don't understand, we're having manicotti, we're having Caesar salad, um, you know, we're having fajitas, we're having a lights out meal. Um, and that's where my ministry comes in. Um, I'm able to share my story with men and women uh, with my disease, and I get to talk about the experience, strength, and hope um, that I have in my life. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm happy, joyous, and free when I do it. And then they ask questions. I get a number of phone calls each year, some text messages, some emails of things I didn't even know, of people going, 
eight months ago I heard you, and this is my life today. And, uh, I can't get anybody drunk and I can't get anybody sober. But I can share my experience, strength, and hope. And I can share my story. And my friends here, you know, they didn't know about the flame out in Arizona per se. They have a, they have a cute saying, and they're like, uh, well, if McCoy can get sober, anybody can. And it really touches me in my heart. And I'll wrap up now. I know we've gone over, but some of the verses um, that definitely with me. Um, I was about seven months sober living in my car, and I was in Arizona. And I was lost. You know, I just didn't understand, you know, what was going on. In your first year of sobriety, you're kind of stupid. And I pulled over to this church. There was nobody at it. And I just needed to breathe. And so I walked up. There was a bench sitting on the church facing the street. And I said, I'm just going to sit there. I sat down on this bench. And I took this picture. And it's Mark 16, 15. And it's facing the church. So I'm looking at it from the bench, looking out of the street when I'm lost. And it says, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. And at the bottom of it, it says, now entering your mission field. I have no idea why I took that picture that day, but I do today. My mission field is what I get to do for men and women in early sobriety. Um, Isaiah 58.10, feed the hungry. Matthew 25.40, when Jesus was talking, whatever you do for the least of them, you do for me. John 13.34-35, love, love thy neighbor as they shall. The greatest commandment is love, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. The Last Supper. I love the Last Supper because Sermon on the Mount is probably my favorite part of the Bible. Um, but the Last Supper is really, really special because if you look at what Jesus was doing, he disrobed and he washed the disciples' feet. The most, I think it's just the biggest part of humility that Christ did in front of the disciples to show them what a servant's heart is like and how important it is to be a servant. Um, he was the greatest servant that I, you know, that, that's ever been here. Three years ago today, I was walking out of a hospital, Baylor, here. I'd had a cerebellar stroke. And... Uh, Dr. Hassan, my uh, neurologist, he said, uh, he goes, Mike, I hope you understand. People just don't have a stroke and walk, being the key word, walk out of the hospital three days later. And I just looked up and I said, some of us do. I know I ramble a lot, and uh, hopefully you gleaned something from what I shared today. I want to thank you. Bless you. I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to serve um, the breakfast and also share some words with you. And if anybody has any questions, if you have a loved one, a friend, a relative, and anybody you want to ask any questions, you can ask me any questions any time of day or night. Um, Glenn's got my information. I'm happy to give it to you. We're all in this together. I believe that we all have the same story. We just use different words. And uh, I love y'all. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you.